thank you for praying for Covenant and the friends there. Let's look for hope in this passage in front of us, Luke chapter 22, verse 39 to 46. We're approaching Holy Week, and this is obviously one of those very important days of Holy Week in Jesus' life. This is probably Wednesday or Thursday when Jesus is experiencing this intense battle during his prayer at the Mount of Olives. And we are accustomed to thinking of, in, uh, by church tradition, Lent has become focused on what we do for the Lord. But um, here is a passage that conveys to us what does the Lord do for us. We're not, uh, we can only be motivated to deep devotion when we understand how profoundly, inexplicably, indescribably devoted Jesus was and is to our redemption. And I would say there are few passages in Scripture that illustrate that more than this one, which I think is often misunderstood. So let's begin by looking at Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 46. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for so loving us that you sent your Son to die for us. Parents in this room, even if we have no personal connection to Covenant School, the parents in this room ache at the thought of losing a child. But you chose to lose your son for us. Oh, help us in this, in this time together not just to see your love, but see our Savior's eagerness to obey your command, to keep your will, to love us even at the price of of his life. And we ask that you would enable us to say likewise, not our will, but yours be done. In Jesus' name, 
God's men said together, amen. <clears throat> like many of you, we, uh, we and the Robertson family had our trials with travel sports. And um, at one time, because our children were in some small school, they played every sport. They played uh, basketball, which ran into uh, soccer, which ran into baseball, which ran into uh, what else is there? We didn't have hockey in Augusta, but we played everything else. And then travel, and then travel soccer would rotate around again. And on more than one occasion, uh, in our hearts, we would sometimes say near the end of a season, please don't let them win this tournament. <laughs> or don't let them win another game so that we don't go to the tournament. But on one occasion... We were at the breakfast table thinking we were by ourselves, my wife and I, and we actually prayed out loud, Lord, it would be so merciful if they could win, if they could lose this game, and they could get some rest and we could get some rest. And we lifted our heads and looked, and there was one of our twins glaring at us. How could you pray for our defeat? Now, sometimes this passage is, is put forward as Jesus demonstrating his real humanity by saying he didn't want to go to the cross. By saying, uh, Lord, if there's any way for me not to go any farther, I sure would appreciate being delivered from it. And uh, there's a certain comfort, I'm sure, there's, when we read the the. the the uh, likenesses we share with the Lord shared with us in our humanity. But, uh, you know, somehow that wouldn't inspire me as a prayer. That Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was saying, Lord, I know it would be the defeat of the people for whom I came to die if I didn't make it to the cross, but um, it sure would be easier on me. I don't think that's possible. I don't think it's possible that Jesus could pray a prayer like I prayed for myself and my selfishness. I don't want them to win another game because I can't endure any longer of a season. I think instead what we see, and there's biblical reason for it, is Jesus battling his way through the Garden of Gethsemane in order to get to the cross for you and me. And <clears throat> Jesus' instructions in prayer, the disciples' inaction or inability, and Jesus' example in prayer provide everything that we need to give our lives totally to him and to pray as he did, not my will but yours be done. Let me show you how I get there. <clears throat> I think we have two points in this, in, this, uh, in this passage that come from the Lord's prayer, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Now, I don't want you to miss this, this detail, first of all, in verse 39. He came out and went, that is, after the 
altercation uh, or after the after the, 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 the time with the disciples when they're arguing over who is the greatest, they'd had their, their supper and so forth. And he says, uh, he went out, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. He was, he was in the habit of going to that Mount of Olives to pray. Now, some of you, many of you in the room have been to the Mount of Olives, and you could understand perhaps why somebody would want to go and pray there peaceful uh, place, a peaceful orchard or vineyard, but um, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives for a very strategic reason. You don't have time, don't need to turn there, but just not, uh, note in your notes, write down in your notes, Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets that we, we've been studying the minor prophets here at Second Prez. And we'll get to Zechariah eventually. But there, Zechariah 14.4, prophecy is made that the Messiah at the great day will come and stand on the Mount of Olives. And then he'll launch his final, um, his final uh, conquest from there. Go through the eastern gate and, and uh, sit on the throne of David. Now that... We think that's figurative language in Zechariah, but here he is literally communicating that he is that Messiah and that this victory that he is going to win as he goes down from the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley and up into Jerusalem uh, entering on uh, the back of a donkey, he is going to, he is going to, he is going to win that victory he is going down the, the entry into Jerusalem he went several times that week the entry in, on the back of the donkey was was earlier in the week but Jesus restaged that entry several times he didn't want us to miss I am the Messiah and I am launching from the Mount of Olives just like Zechariah says I will at the great day when I will win the even greater battle not just entering into the little town of Jerusalem but I am going to conquer the world so Jesus is not without it's not incidental that it's stated here he's on the Mount of Olives as he's praying. He's not just going for a quiet place. He's going there to engage the evil one. He's waging war. Then he came to the place, verse 40, and he said to them, pray that you may not enter temptation. Now, you know, there's a, there's a, a poetic device used by Jewish writers, it's common. You can see it throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. You can even see it at times in the New Testament, and it's called chiasm or chiasm. Uh, you, you who learned your Greek alphabet in the, in the Greek system in college, you know the chi or the key, the X. And the, what this describes is the way Hebrew writers... Uh, would make their point. You know, in Western rhetoric, we make our main point by putting it in the topic sentence, and then you have supporting arguments. <clears throat> but in the Hebrew manner of writing, you put the main point that you wanted in the exact center 
of the passage or even the book. And then by means of parallel statements, you can think of the X, the parallel statement on either side, like arrows, you point to what is the center idea. Or you might think of it as a sandwich. There's a, there's a piece of bread here and a piece of bread here, and the meat is in the middle. Well, that's what you find in this passage. You notice in verse 40, pray that you would not enter in temptation is reflected in verse 46. Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. And then you look one step in, in verse 41. And he withdrew from them a stone's throw, and he knelt and prayed. Verse 45, he rose from prayer. So on the outer, the outer parts, on the, in the bread of the sandwich, pray that you would not be tempted. Just inside, he went to prayer, he rose from prayer. All right, there's only one thing left. And that will tell us what the central idea of the passage is. And that's in verse 42. Remove this cup from me. If that is the central idea of the passage, what is he, what is he making, what point is he making with these, these surrounding statements? He's saying, you are too weak. You're too weak even to pray. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm not telling you to resist temptation. I know that's impossible for you. I know you can't battle the devil like I'm going to have to battle the devil. So pray that you could battle the devil. And they can't even do that. They're too weak physically to pray to resist temptation. They're too weak with sorrow to pray that they would resist temptation. They went to sleep. Our catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, teaches on the Lord's Prayer, and it asks this, what is taught by the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the sixth petition, we pray that God would either keep us from being tempted to sin or support and deliver us when we are tempted. We're not even strong enough at times to pray for our own deliverance. My girls got me into watching this Netflix series, The Crown. And uh, a few months ago, we watched one together about Prince Philip, Prince Charles's father. Prince Philip was the son of Prince Andrew, uh, uh, the, the prince of Greece and Denmark, and his wife uh, uh, supposedly lost her mind, put her in a sanatorium, although she became a nun of sorts and did a lot of good. It seems more likely that Prince Andrew locked, him, locked her away so that he could, uh, he could have his fling with his... Uh, his uh, mistress in Monaco. Regardless, he, uh, his son, uh, Prince Philip, was a nuisance to him. He sent him away, sent him away to Gordonston, the uh, 
the Scottish school, the north of Scotland, run by a, a Jewish um, professor named Han, hypocritical on Prince Andrew's part because he was uh, a Nazi and uh, had welcomed the Nazi party along with a couple of his children. But there, Prince Philip, in resentment, went to that school, and that school was... was uh, according to the Netflix episode anyway, focused on, and it was true, focused on uh, building the boys into a family and dependent on each other. And so they would be broken down of sorts and then they would depend on one another. Well, Prince Philip was determined to live like a prince and didn't want to be dependent on them. He didn't want to stay there. He was trying to get away, didn't want to participate and so he rebelled. He would get in skirmishes with his friends and so forth and, and uh, even tried to run away. There's a very moving scene in that episode where, where he's, uh, he's just learned that his sister, the only one who demonstrated any kind of love for him, was killed in a plane crash. And uh, his family was demanding that he come back for the funeral, which would be a great Nazi parade. And uh, he tried to row away, tried to, to flee. And the schoolmaster named Han yells across the lake, come back here, you will return, you will go to the funeral, you will come back here to Gordonston and we will be your family. Well, he couldn't row anywhere. He had to come back. He had to go to the funeral. He came back begrudgingly, and he was determined not to be a part of the family. So they put him to work, making him build uh, an entrance to Gordon, a, a great stone, uh, stone pillars with iron gates hanging on it. And he worked around the clock doing that by himself, determined to do it entirely by himself. And then the moving scene of his trying to lift these these really heavy iron gates, hundreds of pounds, this frail little boy trying to hang those gates on the hinges, and he couldn't do it. He had to come back into the dining room and say, I need help. What did you say? I need help. It is as if Jesus is putting on his disciples who had just boasted to him, oh, if everybody else leaves you, Peter says, I'll be with you. I'll be swinging a sword defending you. Not only are we going to be with you, you need to go ahead and pick who's going to be the greatest here because we're all going to be vying for, for devotion to you. We will never leave you or forsake you. We're disciplined enough. We're tough enough. We're resourceful enough. We're courageous enough. We will make it to the end. And Jesus effectively puts the iron gate on them and said, okay, hang it on the hinge. Okay, just do this. Just do this. Pray that you wouldn't be tempted. Can't even stay awake for their sorrow. Jesus isn't toying with them. He's not making sport of them. He's demonstrating to them how much they need him, 
how desperately they need him. He doesn't need them. Lead us not into temptation. Oh, do more than that. Deliver us from evil. That's the petition. Don't just help me. Just give me a little boost because I'm, I'm basically a decent enough person, self-disciplined enough, a, a, a respectable person. Just give me a little boost every now and then. No, I'm absolutely desperate. Unless you deliver me from evil, I will give in to it. And so Jesus shows them that he is the answer to that prayer. In verses 42 and 43, the battle ensues. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then being in agony, verse 44, more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. What is happening to Jesus? What is this cup? Many people, uh, I think, mistakenly identify that cup as the crucifixion. There is one place in the Gospel of John, John 18, 11, where the cup refers to the crucifixion. But everywhere else in the synoptic Gospels, we mean by that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are the Gospels that parallel each other. Everywhere else in these synoptic Gospels, cup refers to the bitter experiences of a Christian, of the Christian life. The bitter experiences involved in uh, following Christ, which will inevitably result in persecution or opposition from the evil one himself. If there is a place where we see Jesus identifying with us in our humanity, it is here that Jesus goes through suffering, Jesus goes through bitterness, Jesus experiences the onslaught of evil. He knows what it is to do battle with evil as we are experiencing it. So much so that his blood pressure is, is, uh, is raging. He is melting down physically, sweating drops of blood. The cup that he is experiencing is this bitter battle against evil. And very specifically, he is battling the devil, it seems to me, he is battling the devil who is trying to kill him before he gets to the cross. Now, where do I get that? I want you to, I don't have you turn off into other passages, but I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. You can go all the way to the end of your Bible and then back just a few books to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. I want you to see this with your own eyes or at least write it down and look at it later. The writer of Hebrews says this in the, chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. It surely has to be here. There's no other place where he's doing that. He lifted up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now, if 
if Jesus is praying, if this is a reference to Jesus praying to be spared of the crucifixion, that prayer wasn't answered. But if chapter 5, verse 7 is a reference to this prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, save me from the devil trying to kill me before I get to the cross, that prayer was answered. And, and the devil trying to stop him from getting to the cross is no new strategy. You remember when Adam and Eve were tempted and they fell in the garden and uh, God looks for them and then he, 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 he clothes them and he says in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, the seed of the woman, the serpent, will strike at the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will crush his head. He predicts, he tells us what the rest of history is going to be like. From then on in Genesis, throughout the Old Testament, up until this point in the Garden of Gethsemane, the devil was trying to wipe out the line through which the Messiah would come, trying to wipe out Israel, trying to wipe out the Jews, trying to, trying to wipe out Judah, to stop the coming of the seed of the woman Christ who would save his people from their sins. And up until this last minute, the devil must see, this is my last opportunity. If I can kill him in the Garden of Gethsemane before he gets to the cross, he cannot pay that penalty, that cursed death on the cross that he has to pay to be the Messiah, to suffer for the sins of his people. If I can kill him here, I'll keep him from accomplishing that mission. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus isn't saying, oh, Lord, I can't endure the cross. Oh, Lord, no. Oh, Lord, do not let me fail this mission. I am fighting and clawing and battling my way to that cross for my people. I've said from the beginning of time, I delight to do your will, oh, my God. He told his disciples, I am distressed until I am, I am disappointed I'm forlorn until I undergo that baptism of the cross. When Peter says, don't go to Jerusalem, get behind me, Satan. I've set my face as a flint to Jerusalem. I am determined to die for my people that I might release them from their sin. There is not a hint of self-preservation in that prayer. Not my will, but yours be done. That's always always the Jesus prayer. I delight to do your will, and that will is to be crucified, to face the powers of hell, to have no other friend on earth because I love those people for whom I'm dying. He was heard because of his loud cries and his tears begging, don't let me die before I finish this mission. And he was heard because of his reverence. And how did God answer his prayer? Verse 43, there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. I'm not alone in believing this is what's happening in this passage. One great Old Testament professor from the past, the old Scottish professor, Rabbi Duncan, used to say, the first person, the first being I want to meet when I get to heaven is that angel who strengthened my Lord. 
I want to meet that angel because that angel strengthened my Lord to fulfill his mission, did not allow him to die in the garden, but allowed him to triumph on the cross. My brothers, we search for something to say. We search for some sensical statement to make after a tragedy like Nashville. We are those who lead us say all kinds of idiotic things about how these things can be stopped. They demonstrate themselves to be no more resourceful than these disciples. Here is our strength. The Lord Jesus put himself into the teeth of evil in order to defeat it from the inside out. And following him, it is inevitable that we will face the teeth of evil. It'll cost us. It cost even our children. But we will not run. And we must not flee. Just like and my friend Chad Scruggs is giving testimony to that kind of defiant hope because even today, they're plastering the walls, repairing the windows, because they're going to have a funeral in that church. He said, that's my daughter's church. That's where we experience the hope of the resurrection. And no gunman's going to keep us out of there. Staying close to Jesus. Let's take the battle to the devil. Because the battle has already been won. Let us not tremble in fear. For the prince of darkness is grim, yes. But let's not tremble for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. Mighty fortress is our God. Let's pray together. Well, Lord Jesus, I thank you that I don't have the burden to try to develop a pep talk today. None of us has the burden of trying to create strength in others. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you won that battle.
You won that battle over the devil in the Garden of Gethsemane. You fought your way to that high point, that high ground of the cross. You put yourself there on that cross. You put yourself in between us and God's judgment. You put yourself into the gaping mouth of death. And you rose from the dead because of your righteousness over our sin. Started the clock turning on the final and ultimate defeat of our great foe. Oh Lord, help us as he still attacks us. There are battles to be fought. But we praise you that the victory is won. And ask that you would strengthen us all the more with the hope of Easter. At this Easter, would not merely be dressing up in pretty clothes and having wonderful meals. We do want to celebrate. But may we more than ever stand up in the victory and the courage and the strength of the resurrection. And may it make us a different people. People who are willing to say, not my will, but yours. Even if it costs my life, I know that I will not, that I'll live again. Use us, Lord. Use us in the battle to turn back the forces of evil and get a name for yourself. Encourage my brethren today as they go into their various places of service. Encourage them, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.